live to like people in real life since Easter. So I'm pretty excited um, and also don't know how this is going to go. Like it, it may be awesome or not. Um, as Ryan mentioned, I'm a pastor. I was most recently pastoring outside um, a church outside of Toronto, uh, but I'm originally from Fresno. And I've been in ministry for about six years now. But before I was a pastor, before I was in ministry, I worked at In-N-Out. I worked at In-N-Out Burger for seven years. How many of you have ever worked in, like, fast food, restaurant, a Starbucks? Yeah, okay, so quite a bit of you. Yeah, sorry, what's up? Oh, yeah. Oh, is that, I thought that was someone was popping popcorn, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I worked at In-N-Out for um, seven years. Uh, I got hired when I was in high school and worked all throughout college and multiple times um, when I was in college, I actually thought about dropping out of school just to pursue a career in In-N-Out. Um, yeah, and there were a couple reasons for that. One, they pay really well. Yeah, so store managers like easily make over $100,000 a year. Some of you are like, you're like <laughs> rethinking your career choices right now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I also got to go to Disneyland twice for free, like free burgers every time I worked. I'm a vegan now, but I guarantee you at the end of our lives, I still will have eaten more burgers than you. Um, <laughs> but really the biggest selling point for me, and I knew this when I was there, was the community. Like there was this longing in me, this desire that I knew, this need that was being satisfied. Because those of you who have worked in fast food, you know there's like this bond that is formed in the like common struggle. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's the late night shift when like all of a sudden tons of people come in and you're out of cheese and there's only like three of you working and you're just like, you're bond together, right? So when I would hang out with my coworkers outside of work, which is like all the time, we just talked about In-N-Out. And when there were people there who didn't work at In-N-Out, they're like, what are they talking about? You know, it was like, it was so clear that this was meeting a need in me. I, I was listening to a podcast recently where Joe Rogan was inter interviewing Russell Brand. Uh, and he said, self-improvement is about being better at what satisfies you the most, which is almost always establishing community. I'm also reading right now uh, the memoir of Andre Agassi, the tennis player. I think I got his name right. I don't know if any of you have read that autobiography. It's awesome. And in it, he describes how tennis is like the loneliest sport ever, right? Because you don't have any teammates, and at least in cross country, you're like shoulder to shoulder with your opponent. But in tennis, you're like, you know, on opposite sides of the court. You don't even have a helmet to hide behind. But even he is carried by community. Like, he has this guy that strings his rackets for him, that he brings with him to every match, and he has a coach, and he has someone who makes him, like, the fancy electrolyte protein drinks or whatever, and he has his family. Even he has community. I don't think I have to work very hard post-pandemic to try to convince you that we need community, right? Like, even self-care becomes really hard when you're alone all of the time. We need community. But do we need Christian community? I feel like a lot, of, a lot of us are asking ourselves that right now, aren't we? Like, do we need church? Like, what is different or distinct about Christian community? 
Well, uh, to answer that question, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2. And as Ryan mentioned, we're um, continuing this series called The Others, which I love how on Halloween that sounds like a horror film, you know, like a little spooky. But that is not what it's about. It's about experiencing God and relationship to other people. So we're going to continue that in Mark chapter 2. If you just open your Bibles, we'll also have the passage on the screen, I believe. Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And uh, what you need to know, basically, is the book of Mark is all about Jesus. And even though this is only chapter 2, at this point, Jesus is already, like, trending. Okay? Like, he has performed miracles. He has followers. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left. So many gathered there that there was no room left not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think of that scene uh, in Mean Girls. I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but when Lindsay Lohan's character is, uh, they're throwing a Halloween party, and she's like, I got enough cheese and crackers for like eight people. Do you think that's going to be okay? And the other girls are like, because it's just like a raging house party, right? Like, I just imagine the owners of the house are like, okay, Jesus, we set the table for like your 12 friends. Jesus is like, we're about to blow the roof off this place, you know? It's like the, the flower pots are being broken in the front yard, and there's already a stain on the couch. Like, this is like a raging house party. And there's this man who is outside of the party, right? He's a man who is paralyzed, and he's outside of the party, and he has these four friends who want to bring him to Jesus. Now, We know, because we know the story, eventually this man is healed, but I want you to see that there is a miracle before the miracle. This man has four friends. This man has four friends, and this is a guy who is buried under layers of isolation because his condition in and of itself is isolating. It's limiting him and where he can go. He can't go in the house. But then in this context, people often associated long-term illness or disability with sin. And so because he would have been associated with sin, he was unclean, cut off, outside of community. You cannot come inside. And then, of course, suffering is always isolating. 
Because suffering, no matter what it is, whether you're grieving or you have a job loss or you're sick, it always happens while the people around you are just living life. Like they're graduating or they're going on vacation or they're getting a new job. And so you're kind of like in this alternate reality. So he's buried under layers of isolation, but he has four friends. He has four friends who don't blame him for being paralyzed. Who don't say, this is your fault, you know, like, you shouldn't have been. Like, you got to figure this out. Four friends who didn't say, hey, man, good to see you catch up with you later. Maybe you'll see Jesus on your way out. Four friends who saw his exclusion and said, it should not be this way. There is a party happening, and you should be in the party. You shouldn't be alone. Before they carry this man into the party, before they tear down all of the barriers and bring this guy into Jesus and community, they start a party with him. Like, there's a miracle before the miracle this rogue side party that, like, personally, I would rather be a part of, right? Now, here's the thing about the Bible. We get stories that always have gaps. Like, whether we recognize it or not, there are all these details that we're filling in or we're trying to figure out. And so there's a couple different ways that I can imagine this story going. Because the the Bible doesn't tell us. Like, I could imagine that these four friends see this man who is paralyzed, and he's, like, advocating for his own healing. He's like, please, guys, come on. Come over here, please. Can you carry me to Jesus? That could be how it went down. We don't know. I think it's much more likely, though, that the four friends see him, and we'll say his name's Ryan, and I'm just saying that because I'm looking at you, Ryan. They're like, Ryan! we got to take you to this house. Like, Jesus is there right down the road, and you don't understand. He's, like, healing people, and he's talking about this kingdom where the first and last and last are first, and we think he's the Messiah. You've got to meet him. We've got to take you. And he probably said something like, what's the point, you guys? Like, it's, it's been like this always. Because isn't that what happens when you're sick for so long or you're suffering for so long or you're dealing with infertility for so long? Like, after a while, you just kind of give up on the hope of anything being different, right? Yeah, it's almost like too vulnerable to even pray about it. You start to think, yeah, God doesn't really care. God doesn't care about this. Uh, The author Parker Palmer put it this way, the deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. I think it's much more likely he probably reached a point of, like, bitterness or cynicism. Or, like, if this was happening here in the U.S., this is how I imagine this going. Ryan, Ryan, we got to take you to this guy. Jesus, come on, we're going to carry you. We're going to bring you there. No, guys, it's okay, really. I'm fine. Like, I don't want to be an inconvenience to you. Like, you guys go ahead. You're going to have to carry me. I'm heavy. Like, what are the chances? Like, it's just, it's okay, guys. I'm fine. Because how many of us do that? When someone says, how are you doing? In your head, you're like, oh, man, like, I, I'm thinking about slashing my boss's tires, like, once a week. <laughs> but I'm fine. I'm great. How's it going? You know, someone asks you, how's it going? In your head, you're like, 
well, my spouse and I haven't had a real good connecting conversation in months, but it's going. Or this is my favorite. How can I pray for you? And in your head, you're like, I'm completely falling apart. I'm so depressed. I can't get out of bed. Can you just pray for patience? I just need patience, right? Yeah, because we don't want to be a burden or we don't want to let people in. It's really hard to come to a place where you say, hey, I need Jesus. Can you carry me to Jesus? Hey, I need help. Can you walk with me in this? So these four friends, they're, they're committed to Ryan. They're committed to taking him to Jesus. And they make their way for the house. And we know there's, there's crowds. There's no room, right? And this is where Ryan's like, see, what's the point, guys? I told you, like, we're not going to be able to get in there. But they don't give up. Like, they're pushing through, and they're getting elbowed in the face, and it's hot, and they're tired. Their arms are weary. Their knuckles are sore. They're getting the passive-aggressive clearing of the throat. <clears throat> and then more directly, wait your turn, man. But they're not giving up. No way. They keep pushing through. And at this point, I think this is where we would expect them to give up. Or many of us, and when I say us, I mean people in our culture, would give up. Because I know Ryan last week talked about bearing one another's burdens. And I, I think in Western culture, to be honest, we're not very good at that. We're not really good at going the distance with people. You know what we're really good at? We're really good at lightening the load. Here, I'll, I'll send some money here this one time. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to pray for you, but I don't really... I'll post this on social media and show that I care about it. But for the long haul, when things don't look great, when there's not a lot of hope, could we bear the burden? It, I think it requires a little bit too much commitment. And we're all really busy. And it's an inconvenience to whatever else we have going on. But these guys cannot be inconvenienced. They cannot be pushed away. They push through and they have this crazy idea they're going to take him on the roof. How do they even get him on the roof? Like, if you've heard this story before, we may come accustomed to it, but like, this is crazy. They literally unroof the roof. Like, they get up there and I just imagine Ryan's like, guys, are you sure? Like, please don't drop me, right? And there's like hay and whatever else, like going every which way as they do this. And can you just imagine also like the homeowners? <laughs> like at this point, they're just standing there like, okay, pretty sure our policy, our homeowners insurance policy does not co cover miracle signs and wonders. Um, cool. But Jesus is like not surprised by this. Like he's not thrown off. He looks over and you know what he says in verse 5? He says, my child, or my son, your sins are forgiven. Here is this man, completely excluded from community, labeled nobody, unclean, no room for you in the party, and Jesus says, my child, you belong to me. Your sins are forgiven. There's this really awesome, miraculous thing happening. And then there are these religious leaders. They're the rule followers. They know the law inside and out. And the text says they're reasoning in their hearts. 
not even sure how you do that. How do you reason in your heart? You reason with your mind. And they're like, no, Jesus, we can't do that. Only God can do that, right? That's how I imagine them, like, thinking in their head. And so Jesus, like, in some kind of, like, Jedi force, like, understands what they're thinking in their head. And he's like, fine, I'll prove it. Get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. Jesus says, look, that's right, you're healed. Any barrier that was keeping you from me or from community is now done. You're healed. You're in. But I don't want to draw attention from what the focus of the story really is. The author seems to be narrowing in on something here. Jesus, it says, saw their faith. He saw their faith. The faith of the friends. The friends who were so committed to this man, who were so confident in Jesus' ability to heal him that they literally tear the roof off of the house. Their faith. Do we really need Christian community? This is the kind of community that heals. It's not out of this own man's ability or his own faith. It's not like he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he figured it out. He was healed in community. And what I love about this story is before he was even healed physically, before he even regained the ability to walk, he's already experiencing wholeness because they are bringing him into community. They are breaking down the barriers that are excluding him. The miracle before the miracle. See, as followers of Jesus and as the church, we're not just a community that does good work in the name of Jesus. We're not just a community that shares a message of hope in the name of Jesus. We are a community of people that embody the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what I see these four friends doing. I just can picture, like, Jesus' trajectory in their story. Because they're carrying this man just like Jesus carried his cross and needed help carrying it. And then they lower him into a house just like they lowered Jesus into the ground and he descended into hell. And then three days later, he resurrects and this man is healed and he gets up and walks. See, there is hope and transformation that happens, but it is birthed out of incredible solidarity. They're embodying the story of Jesus, the death and resurrection. What does this actually look like practically, though? Like, how do we do that? So when I was uh, in Toronto... Um, I have, since 2016, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, so I have had a journey with chronic illness, and when I was in Toronto, I had a couple flare-ups. One thing that has developed from um, my illness is that I basically have, like, allergies or sensitivities to things that are toxic that a lot of us don't think about, like fresh paint, mold, pesticides, those kinds of things. And this time last year, I was living with a family who had a pest company come spray their house. And they weren't thinking, because this is just things that we do. And I got so sick. 
and we were like praying and, and we were trying to figure out what to do, but this was like the beginning of a second lockdown. Like people in Canada were very cautious with COVID, so nobody was really like jumping at the opportunity to take another person in their house. And it was super hard. And one of the people I lived with, a woman, her name is Kelly. She said, Grace, as long as you're going through this, I'm going to fast your diet. My diet is fruits and vegetables, okay? Like, it's not a fun diet. But she said, Grace, I'm in this with you until this is over. Yeah. Radical solidarity. Because sometimes we are burdened with something that God does not intend for us to carry alone. I have experienced seasons in my journey with chronic illness where I have felt well, where I have felt healthy. But none of those moments come close to satisfying or fulfilling or bringing as much hope as the moments when people are standing with me in the suffering. Does that make sense? And when Ryan invited me to preach on this topic of sharing hope with others and experiencing hope with others, my mind flooded with like different passages and different angles that I could take. And there are so many layers to the hope that we have in Jesus, but I chose this because I believe so desperately this is what our culture needs. Because church, we're sick. And it's not a sickness that's easy to diagnose. I'm not even talking about physical sickness here. I'm talking about the alienation and loneliness and the need that we have for community. As I've heard another pastor describe it, it's a sophisticated kind of sickness. People around us, so many people, are looking for community that will stand with them in solidarity. That will say, this isn't too much for me. No, still not too much for me. I know this is hard, but I'm with you, and I have hope and expectation that this is going to get better. Because that's what we see in this story. It's solidarity in the suffering, and it's deliverance from. And when we follow Jesus, we live with hope and expectation that either now or on the other side of the fullness of God's kingdom, there will be healing and restoration and wholeness. So when I was in Canada and I had this flare-up because of the pesticides, I ended up flying back to Fresno. Um, I just needed to rest and kind of be out of that environment. And then I went back to Canada. And a couple weeks later, and someone close to me said, Grace, why did you go back? Like, there were a number of trials and things that had come up. And I said, oh, because I'm not going alone. Because I'm going with Jesus and I have a community of people that are holding me up in hope. And sadly and frustratingly, when I got back, like, the house was still causing symptoms. Everything hadn't dissipated yet. So we were, like, this is, like, December, like, walking around with our parkas, like, airing out the house. Can you just imagine that? Okay. Um, <laughs> and at one point, I had a friend said, Grace, you and the people you live with need to pray in this house. So we did. We prayed, and God spoke in a way that only God can to tell me that he saw me and he was with me. And I'm not kidding you, like the next day my body calmed down. 
see there's solidarity in and there's deliverance from. And I know the people who entered into solidarity with me did so because they were grieved and they believed, Grace, this isn't a burden that you should have to carry alone, but also I have hope and expectation that your situation will improve, either like now or in some way in the fullness of the kingdom. Sometimes we need people just to hold us up in hope because it's too vulnerable for us to do that on our own. Elsewhere in uh, the Bible, Jesus said, greater things you will do in my name. He says that to his followers. And I honestly believe that that is true, that we can expect greater things we will do in Jesus' name. But if that's going to be true, it's going to look like carrying other people and letting them carry us. And sometimes that second part is harder, isn't it? Letting other people carry us. But I want you to see in this story that these four friends, they enter in solidarity to this man who is paralyzed and they share in his suffering and they shoulder his burden. But it's not just the suffering that they share, it's the miracle. They get to share the resurrected life with this man who can now walk. And it was the power of their faith. So let me ask you this, how far did your faith go? Where will you let your faith take you? What does it look like for you practically to embody as an individual and as a community the death and resurrection of Jesus? I think there's a a couple invitations that you could walk away with today. The first is an invitation to enter into solidarity with people. And let me invite you to consider, before you do anything, to pray and ask God, God, what would you have me do? Take some time praying specifically for a person who you know is going through something difficult. God, what would you have me do? Because sometimes, I think we just, we try to carry the person without even trying to carry them to Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Like, we take things upon us that we don't need to. We think it's our responsibility to fix something rather than just taking them to Jesus. So what would Jesus have you do? The second thing is, I have a sense that there are people in this room who are suffering in silence. And you're wondering, like, God, where are you in this? And I feel like God is saying, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm in community, can you say something? Like, God is inviting you to let other people carry you. So there's an invitation to you for this week, maybe even today, don't leave before you tell someone, hey, can you hold me in hope? Can you hold me up in hope? Can I share with you something that's going on in my life? Do we really need Christian community? Can we just have community? I've experienced all different kinds of community with co-workers, with support groups, with people that I've gone to school with. But there's nothing like Christian community because in no other context are you going to find people who will embody the death and resurrection of Jesus, who will stand with you in solidarity in your suffering with hope and expectation that Jesus is going to do a good work. Let me pray for us.
God, thank you so much that we get to gather together in person. And God, we are so thankful um, that you care so deeply for us, that you took on human flesh, and that you showed up in radical form in solidarity with us. And God, we also walk in, in hope and expectation that the suffering that we endure, that it's not wasted, that you are making something beautiful of these things, and that you are walking with us as we journey to the fullness of restoration and wholeness, which we know eventually will come, either now or when you return. God, in the power of your spirit, would you come and would you sustain us? And when you open our eyes to help us see the people in our life who are just looking to be carried for a bit, and when you show us what you would have us do, and God, for those of us here who are suffering and enduring trials of many kinds, God, would you give us a boldness and a courage just to say, I need you, I need help. Jesus, would you carry me? And God, I pray for any of the people in this room who are feeling despair. Maybe their hope has brought them to a place of despair. They feel like they can't come to you or ask for help. God, through your spirit, would you comfort? And would you renew a vision of the good work that you're doing? Mm -hmm.